Amen. Good morning. Good to see you all. John chapter 20 today. Fascinating this week. Chad Johnson tweeted something that caught my eye. You may not know who that is. He's a former, only one year removed NFL superstar wide receiver. Now, reality star, I think he was on Dancing with the Stars. For those of you who don't follow sports, you might know who he is anyway. In fact, he, I think, changed his name at some point to Ocho Cinco, right? And I think he's back to being Chad Johnson again. And this is what he tweeted to America this week. He said, that awkward moment when you realize you're not on Madden 13 any longer. He had bought that video game, the football video game, Madden Football 2013. He no longer being in the NFL, had to do what every young kid does growing up. He had to create his own person on the game, his own avatar, as they say, his own person. Joe Shoup, 6'4", 220 pounds, runs a 4'3", that kind of thing, great hands. You know, you do that sort of thing uh, with these video games these days, and Chad Johnson here, realizing that his NFL career has come to an end, and it's an awkward sort of reality settling in sort of scenario for him in his life at a young age, at a young age. And whether you're young or older or whether you're successful and have a lot of money or have accomplished a lot of things in life, eventually you come to the realization in life that you can't stay on top of your game forever. You know, there's really no way to win in this game of life. You know, you're going to get beat by it at some point, one way or another. I was, I'll never forget when my wife's aunt was dying. Many years ago, we had a lot of the family there, and one of her cousins was wearing a cross around his neck, and I, I went up to him and just said, oh, the cross. So you must believe in life after death and hope for your aunt. And not defiantly, not rudely, he just kind of said, well, nobody knows because no one's ever come back to tell us about it. And ultimately... That is the very best case scenario outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there really is no hope for mankind. You know, you can achieve riches and fame. Fans might adore you. Critics might even respect you. And still the very best that you can hope to accomplish someday is that when you finally breathe your last breath, they'll chronicle your life, they'll write books about you, they'll write a biography chronicling your legacy, hopefully mostly good things. Maybe like a president, like an Abraham Lincoln or a JFK, and they'll remember you well for what you did. You got to tell you when it's all said and done, after people are dead, they don't care what their legacy is. I'm just telling you right now doesn't really make a whole lot of difference to them. But that's the best hope you have in this lifetime independent of Jesus Christ. 
Yet we come to John chapter 20 this morning, which is what we might call the chapter beyond where all other biographies end. Because where all other biographies end in a death of a person, here we turn the page and we keep on reading. And as you continue to read the story, you realize that the story becomes more interesting with every single page that you turn. You realize that it's not merely some historic tragedy, but it is the most remarkable love story in all of history. Because you come to chapter 20, in a lot of ways, it's like we're just beginning. It's very unique from all other biographies in that sense. That the death of Jesus Christ seemingly is almost just the beginning of the whole story. It's also unique, as opposed to all other biographies out there, in its dedication as well. In other words, in who it's dedicated to. You read many books before, biographies, autobiographies, even novels. Oftentimes the author dedicates the book to someone special in their life. Someone who impacted their life. Someone who was instrumental in their development that enabled them to even write a book in the first place. Oh, I dedicate this to such and such. And John, the apostle who writes this book, his biography of the life of Jesus Christ, he dedicates this book to a very special audience. He dedicates this book to you and to me. And he said, to those that you may believe. It's the key phrase in the book of John, that you may believe. What does he want you to believe this morning? What does he want you to believe in the book of John? He wants you to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is the key essential of the Christian faith and of the gospel message. If it is true, it means that everything that Jesus Christ said about himself, that he is the promised Messiah fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies, that he is God's son, that he is equal with the Father, that he is Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, everything that he said about himself is true. And that what he offered up on the cross, that sacrifice for our sins, if you're here this morning, you are just like every single one of us. You're a sinner. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm not pointing you out. I'm including all of us in that. Every single one of us is a sinner. And he had to go to the cross to carry, as we just sang, the weight of our sin. The Apostle Paul said, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain and your faith is also vain. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And yet he goes on to say, but Christ indeed has risen from the dead. And the empty cross and the empty grave is God's receipt, if you will, that the price has been paid, offered up on behalf of our sins. And because of this, from the very beginning, the enemies of our Lord, the enemies of the resurrection, have been trying to undermine the facts of the resurrection. We've looked at a few of these things. We'll look at a few more of these this morning. Remember last week, the so-called swoon theory, right? That Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He merely fainted because he was exhausted, dehydrated, and lost a lot of blood. 
So they pulled him down off the cross. Forget about the fact that they stuck a spear up under his ribcage and into his heart, and out came blood and water. But somehow he survived that, and he was placed in a tomb, was resuscitated, somehow moved that large stone that was blocking the entrance to the tomb out of the way, took on the 16 Roman guards that were outside of the tomb, nursed himself back to health, and convinced the disciples that he was resurrected from the dead and had overcome death. No possible way. This morning we look at two other things, the possibility that the body of Jesus might have been stolen or that the disciples somehow went to the wrong tomb. And we'll consider the validity of these alternative theories as we analyze the text today. We left off where, of course, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were taking Jesus down off of that cross, laying him in a nearby tomb. That tomb belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. In the book of Matthew, we're told that the religious leaders went to Pilate, and they called Jesus a deceiver, the religious leaders did. They said, this deceiver, we got to guard the tomb, because if the disciples come and steal the body, then that deception will run rampant. So you got to guard that tomb. So Pilate said, okay. He dispatched a Roman guard. We say a guard, we're saying in excess possibly of maybe 16 men. They would rotate and shift. Some would sleep while others would stand guard. So there would always be at least a few of them standing guard 24-7. And they would seal with a cord the outside of the tomb with clay seal on the outstretched sides of that cord with a Roman seal in the front, which basically represented don't mess with Rome. If anyone breaks this seal, we're coming after you. And if we know who you are and we know the village that you're in, we're going to come after everyone in the village as well. And they would crucify every man, woman, and child in that village as well. So you didn't mess with the Roman seal. It wasn't just something that you did. So what is Mary Magdalene doing showing up to the tomb the beginning here of John chapter 20. Well, we know from last week that it was preparation day, right? Preparation day meant that as Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were trying to get Jesus buried and wrapped in those linen cloths and the bandages on him and all that kind of thing, get him cleaned off, they were running out of time. The feast was happening. You know, it was the Passover feast. The Sabbath was upon them, and so they needed to get things done. So perhaps Mary is coming to try and finish off the process. But you wonder what Mary's thinking here in terms of how she's going to move this big stone out of the way. Modern engineers estimate that the stone would have weighed between one and a half, one to one and a half tons. I know there were other women with her, but that's a, some incredible amount of strength to move a stone. They would have had to push that stone uphill. would have been a difficult task indeed for her to do. Now, she might have known, or she might have not, that the guards were posted out there. Perhaps she was hoping they would take pity on her, that they would move the stone, let her into the tomb for a minute so she could finish off and finalize the burial process. Little did she know that as she arrived to the tomb, God had already taken care of the problem for her. Look what it says, John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. It says, now on the first day of the week, it's Sunday... Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And by the way, don't ever forget that God didn't roll away the stone so Jesus could get out of the tomb. 
He rolled away the stone so that the disciples could go into the tomb and report to us their findings here this morning so that we would have the evidence of the resurrection. It says, Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. I always stop there, don't I? That's how John refers to himself, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Notice John never refers to himself as the disciple who loves Jesus. Because that's no big deal. What's not to love about Jesus? It's easy to love Jesus. That's not mind-boggling at all. What's mind-boggling, what's amazing, what John's trying to convince you of in this gospel that you may believe that Jesus loves you. That you're also the disciple whom Jesus loves in a very personal way this morning. And probably he believed that more than ever as he began to write down and recall the events of that morning. As Mary Magdalene came rushing in in a panic to Peter and John. And look at what she says to them. Says, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And one objection, as we said this morning when we began, was that possibly maybe the disciples went to the wrong tomb, and they just thought that Jesus had resurrected because they went to the wrong place. And keep in mind that Luke chapter 23 tells us that Mary Magdalene and the other women were with Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea when the body was raised. Keep in mind also that the tomb itself belonged to Joseph of Arimathea, so I think he knew where his tomb was. He also was a disciple of Jesus, so it wouldn't have been hard for them to find at all. Not to mention that that's a bogus argument anyway. Think about it. If in reality the disciples went to the tomb, and they went to the wrong tomb by accident and started telling everybody that he has risen, all the religious leaders would have had to do to squash the rumors of the resurrection is produce the body. Why didn't they ever produce the body? Because they didn't have the body. Because he had risen from the dead. There was nothing that they could do. Clearly, Mary is under the impression, it never occurs to her that she went to the wrong tube. Did I go to the wrong tube? She doesn't ask that at all. In fact, I don't even think that it occurs to her at this point in any way that Jesus is actually risen from the dead at this point. This is just a woman who loved God deeply, who cared for Jesus so much. Remember, Jesus cast seven demons out of Mary Magdalene. So she was deeply devoted to him. She had an incredible, very special love and commitment to Jesus Christ. So much so that it's almost impressive. It almost kind of challenges me. Here she is getting up early in the morning, it says, when it was still dark. So between 3 and 6 a.m. She loved Jesus so much that she's seeking a dead Jesus at between 3 and 6 o'clock in the morning. You know, and I sometimes have a hard time getting up a half hour earlier to seek a living Jesus. Challenges me a little bit the faith and the commitment of Mary Magdalene. Actually, all of the commitment, the reaction of everybody here in the text this morning it's pretty spectacular when you consider that none of them really thought he was going to rise. Did you know that? You can look down at verse 9. We're not going to go there yet. We'll get there later. But John says as much. 
He says that the disciples didn't really realize. They didn't understand. They didn't know that he was going to rise. They thought they'd been defeated, that their master had been killed. Still, nevertheless, when Mary Magdalene comes in, in a haste, the body, it's missing. It's kind of interesting how Peter and John react here. You know, the adrenaline starts pumping. They know something's up. They don't know what yet. But take a look here, verse 3. It says, Peter therefore went out, and the other disciple, again, John, Peter just goes right away. And John's like, well, I might as well go too. And they were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Funny how the Apostle John is the only one of the gospel writers that includes this fact in the Easter morning message that he outran Peter to the tomb. Okay, you got good wheels. Congratulations. Interesting. There's got to be some, though, underpinning, though, right, Pastor? Deep theological significance to that point. Not that I know of. I have no idea where he's going with that. Uh, John is super humble. He never uses his name anywhere in this gospel at all whatsoever. But he does want us to know that he was a faster runner than Peter, that's for sure. And he, verse 5, speaking of John, who got there first, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there. Yet he did not go in. John, more of a contemplative type, just looking in and saw the clothes lying there from a distance, but he didn't go in. Peter, more of an impulsive type, as we know, he just barges in. It says, then, probably out of breath, (laughs) huffing and puffing, Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. So, first of all, two miracles here of utmost importance for us to record. Number one, Jesus has risen from the dead. Praise God. Number two, an unmarried man has left his clothes folded. I mean, what are the chances of that happening? (laughs) No, but seriously, this is completely dispels any notion at all whatsoever that someone might have stolen the body. Think about it. When was the last time that thieves, after ransacking a house, decided to vacuum and clean up afterwards on the way out the door? I mean, if these grave robbers, supposing that they could have outmanned the Navy SEALs of the day, the Roman guards that would have been stationed out there, you think they're going to take the time to unwrap the body before they take it out of the grave and then, you know, fold the napkin all nice and neat at the end of it. I don't think that that's going to happen. There were, there probably are still today, such a thing as grave robbers, tomb raiders, and they're known to take away clothes and jewelry and leave the body. They're not known to take the body and leave the clothes and the jewelry behind, especially since Mark tells us that he was wrapped in fine linen, so it would have been worth something. Not to mention, I don't know why anybody, if they did decide that they wanted to steal a body for any reason, why they would want to steal a body unclothed rather than clothed. What would you rather carry around town? And what do you think would probably send off more of a signal running around with a naked dead body or a clothed dead body? I don't know. 
So it doesn't make any sense, of course, but the big idea here is that the clothes is what stood out in both of their minds. They're going, the clothes are there. The napkin is folded up, but the body is not there anymore. And it struck a chord, especially with John from his perspective. He says, verse 8, then the other disciple who came to the tomb first, you know he got there first, right? He just wants you to know that. Went in also and saw and believed. Well, this is the part where John believed. But notice what he says in verse 9. He said, for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. How many times that Jesus told them that he was going to rise again from the dead? He actually told them many different times. Just a few examples. John chapter 2, verse 19, he said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then in John 2.22, John the apostle said at that point they didn't understand, but later after the resurrection, they understood that he was speaking of his body and not the actual temple. Jesus also compared himself to the prophet Jonah in that he said as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. On two occasions alone in the book of Matthew, he outright just tells his disciples that they would go to Jerusalem, that he would be delivered to the chief priests, that he would suffer many things, that he would be killed, and that he would be raised on the third day, or on the third day he would be raised, chapter 16 and chapter 20 of Matthew. So it's interesting that John here says that he saw and believed, but he's brutally honest in admitting that it wasn't his knowledge of the scriptures that led him to believe. He wasn't syncing up the Old and New Testament types and then realizing that they pointed to Jesus at this point in time. He wasn't even recalling what Jesus had told him about his own resurrection. He wasn't going, oh yeah, that's right. He's saying he didn't at this point even connect the dots. He believed based upon what he knew about Jesus, but not because he had taken Jesus' word at face value. Not because he had trusted in Jesus' word before the resurrection had taken place. Actually, it seems like in a lot of ways, the religious leaders took Jesus more seriously about his resurrection than the disciples did. That's why they posted the guards out front. Not that they thought Jesus would actually rise, but they were afraid that the disciples might steal a body to try and propagate the lie in their mind of the resurrection. The disciples, it seems here from the text, they didn't think that Jesus was going to rise at all. There's no indication that Mary Magdalene believed that there was a resurrection here. She thought they had moved the body. Peter and John, they did get up and they did run, and God bless them for doing that. They thought something was up, but I don't think they knew what was up. It's not like when Mary Magdalene came in that morning and said they moved the body. It's not like Peter was lounging back in his lazy boy going, well, of course the body's not there, Mary. He said he would rise from the dead. Duh. No, they have no idea at all. They're just like, what? And they just take off running. They want to check it out for themselves. They want to see what's happening. None of the disciples had taken Jesus' word at face value. You realize that? They didn't believe him, that he was going to rise from the dead. You know, I have that same exact problem, by the way. Oh, I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. 
I place my trust for my soul into his hands. And if you haven't done that this morning, I would encourage you to do the same. But isn't there sometimes on a day-to-day basis where you just have a hard time taking him at his word, trusting him that his way is better than your way? I admit it. I'm actually surprised when God comes through in the clutch. I'm actually surprised when God bails me out of a scenario that I got myself into. I'm a little shocked when he gets me past this brutal hurdle that I'm looking at, that I'm facing this morning. Sometimes I'm blown away at his provision. You know, when it's like, man, how are we going to get our car fixed? We can't afford it. We haven't got a dime in our bank account. How's God going to get us through? And yet, what does he do? Every time. We're still here. We have shirts on our backs. We got cheeseburgers waiting for us. No one's starving today. He's good. He continues to be good. He is our provision. You know, especially in light of this text this morning, I think sometimes we consider the resurrection. This is something sometimes we can lose a little heart in ourselves. Oh, you can believe Jesus rose from the dead, but do you know what that means? If you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it means that you too will rise from the dead someday. And I have a feeling we're all going to be like a little bit surprised. We're going to get there, we're going to go, I knew I believed it, but wow. I remember the day I went down to the admissions office at Santa Clara University to check and see if I graduated. I thought, sure, someone's going to say, you're not even close, bro. You got at least several more credits to go, four more classes. You skip this one, and you got a D minus in that class, so it doesn't even count or whatever. That was accounting, by the way, that I got a D minus in. I don't do the books here. God provides. God takes care of us, and God shows you his promises are true and that he comes through. And his son's resurrection is evidence of the promise and the hope that we have in our own. John believed here. He did. But he believed kind of surfacy, right? Not in a real deep way. How do I know that? What makes me think that? Well, you notice here how him and Peter just go home after this? Like, you would think they would go tip off Mary Magdalene, who's weeping at the tomb. Right? Don't you think they would go over to their sister and go, hey, there's no reason to weep. We figured it all out. He's risen from the dead. No, they just go home and leave her there weeping at the tomb. It says in verse 10, then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord. There's another example that you want to just pull this out of the text this morning. John says that he's the disciple whom Jesus loved, and Mary says they've taken away my Lord. And you know what? She is... He is no more her Lord than he is your Lord if you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ. You can claim the same thing. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. He's my Redeemer. I'm the disciple 
whom Jesus loves. Again, the emphasis and the focus is that it is a very personal relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. That he didn't just die for the sins of humanity, but he died for you personally as an individual. Knows everything about you and loves you the way that you are. They've taken away my Lord, she says, and I do not know where they have laid him. It's interesting here how Mary seemingly has this encounter with these angels. Peter and John didn't have the same encounter. And yet she seems somewhat unimpressed by angels. Now it's possible that she didn't know they were angels. I doubt that very much. It's reported as angels. She looked into the tomb. She saw two men clothed in white nonchalantly saying, why are you weeping? At the head of where Jesus had been laying and at the feet of where he had been laying. I think she knew they were angels. She's just not that impressed because her heart's with Jesus Christ. I would have been taking pictures or gotten an autograph, something like that. Like that would have blown me away seeing a couple angels. I don't know about you. But Mary, not so much. Not that interested in these angels because her heart is with Jesus Christ. It's all about the Lord. You know, and I hope you know very seriously that spiritual phenomenon and supernatural manifestations, even angelic visitations, are no substitute for Jesus Christ. They do not compare to Jesus Christ. You know, in fact, even sometimes we can mistakenly allow the things of God to get in the way of our worship of God and our intimacy with God in our lives. You know, sometimes the church, even Christians, we get caught up like in a wave of something like angels, like books and movies and TV shows come out about angels and the fascination of angels. And Mary here sees these two angels and she's not really that interested in them. She just says to them, they've taken away my Lord. That's her focus, her Lord. Well, I really want to be more like that. I really wish my heart was more that way. You know, that my focus would be more on my Lord in life, you know, that the kind of things that would get the juices flowing and the blood pumping, the kind of things that I would get excited about, instead of being a big football game or a promotion at work or a goal I'm trying to accomplish or a momentous occasion or event that's on the schedule in the upcoming future, that it would be Jesus Christ and his resurrection daily that would be my thing. That would be the thing that would get me excited. That would be the thing that would get me to want to shout. The thing that would want me to praise, to sing, to pray, to seek him early in the morning. We could learn from Mary a little bit here in her unswerving devotion for Jesus Christ. But that does make verse 14 a bit peculiar in light of the fact that her entire emphasis and focus was on Jesus. Look what we're told here. It says, now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Why didn't she know that it was Jesus? Well, there's several possibilities. I'll give you a few. Number one could be simply because she wasn't expecting Jesus to be there, right? Again, just reiterating the point that no one's really thinking Jesus is going to rise from the dead here at this point in time, so she's not expecting it. So she turns around and looks at this person and doesn't realize who it is. 
It could be that God will not allow her at this point in time until the appointed time to recognize Jesus. We know that that was the case in the book of Luke when the two disciples were on the road to Emmaus. The book of Luke says that their eyes were restrained until Jesus broke the bread, right? And then their eyes were open, and then they knew that they had been with the risen and living Savior. It could also be, though, that because she was weeping a lot. Remember the angel said, why are you weeping? And the word weeping means wailing or lamenting heavily. It could be that like her eyes were literally filled up with tears. You know, when you've been crying for a long time, you know how that's like. You know, your eyes can actually get swollen because you're so sorrowful. And you just look out and you don't really see it first glance. Maybe it's still a little bit dark early that morning. I think spiritually speaking, that's actually a very important point of emphasis for us. Because oftentimes in our lives, we think that God is far when he's always near. And oftentimes my vision is blurred by my sorrow and my tears. I'm going through a difficult time, right? Because we all go through difficult times. And we sometimes forget that God's presence is especially manifested in those times. That's what he majors in. That's what he's all about comforting us. He's the healer. He's the protector. That Holy Spirit living inside of us, closer than the air that you breathe. Another after his kind, that Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. And aren't you glad, too, that it's not incumbent upon you to, like, find him? You know, to navigate through life, like when you're going through a tough time, and find him? You know, if you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you know he beckons you to pray, right? He initiates with you. You're stuck in the mud. You're having a tough day, and he comes to you and says, how about you pray right now? And it changes your perspective on things. Amazing how he reveals himself. He works to reveal to him, himself to us time and time again. Look what it says, verse 15. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? But then he follows it up with another question that the angels didn't ask. He said, whom are you seeking? Of course, he knew who she was seeking. And she, supposing him to be the gardener, <laughs> she thought Jesus was the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. I wish I could have heard what that sounded like. Because that changed everything, didn't it? It says, she turned, which means now she turned back. So she looked at him, and when she said, show me where you've laid the body, she must have turned away. Because as soon as Jesus says, Mary, she turned and looked back at Jesus and said to him, end of verse 16, Rabboni, which is to say teacher or master, or in this case, Lord, is risen. He's alive. She knew at that moment in time that he was alive. It's interesting that she didn't recognize him just by looking at him. However, when he speaks her name, then her eyes are open. I have a feeling it's probably in part because of the way that he 
said her name in only a way that Jesus could have said it. You know, growing up, when my dad yelled out my name, that meant I was in trouble. <laughs> I was the middle of three kids. And he would use my full name, Joseph. That meant I was in trouble. In fact, if the three of us were like, you know, doing something wrong in the other room, it was always me whose name got called out. I tell you this now because he'll be here in a couple weeks. I wouldn't say it with him sitting here. He's still a big man who can take me out anytime he wants, no problem. Very godly man, too. And he'll get a chance to meet a man. My older brother will be here as well. And he'll tell you that it's true that I took the blame for those things. I think because I was the loudest of the three growing up, so I was the voice he could hear. Perhaps for Mary, growing up, when her mother would say her name, it was sort of a scolding kind of scenario. Maybe the men in her life, when they said Mary, perhaps it was sort of a manipulating kind of deal. Her neighbors, when they said Mary, it was an accusing kind of tone. Maybe even a friend, when they said Mary, it was a, a correcting or a rebuking kind of thing. But when Jesus says Mary, it's a loving, it's a forgiving, and it's, a, and it's an accepting kind of tone. So gentle. I mean, we just couldn't begin to even say it to know how Jesus did it, but it was something in how he said it that made the difference. In John chapter 10, Jesus said that he was the good shepherd. And remember what he said about being the good shepherd? He said he calls his own sheep by what? Name. And they know his voice. She knew his voice when he said Mary, and she knew now her Savior was alive, that he had resurrected. Remember the Apostle Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul? All the way up into the beginning of Acts chapter 9, he was still Saul of Tarsus. The Bible says, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And as he journeyed to Damascus, he heard a voice saying to him, it says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he responded and said, Who are you, Lord? He knew he was speaking to the Lord at that point in time. Again, so personal the way the Lord Jesus treats each person. Next week, when he makes an appearance to the disciples in the upper room, he goes out of his way to try and reach Thomas. You know the story, right? Old doubting Thomas. And he says, Put your hand in my side and see and believe. In chapter 21, he goes out of his way to restore Peter, who remember we last left off denying the Lord Jesus three times, his heart broken, but he ministers to Peter in such a beautiful way, sort of an epilogue to the book, that's such a great way to close out the book. Last week, we saw him minister to John and his mother Mary at the cross, remember? He said, son, behold your mother, and uh, woman, behold your son, even though Mary wasn't John's mother. But he was, again, other-centered all the way to death, specifically, personally ministering to each one along the way. And I do not believe, personally, I do not believe that there is any difference 
in how Mary Magdalene or Mary the mother of Jesus or Thomas or Peter or Paul or even John the disciple whom Jesus loved relates to Jesus Christ, we stand in line behind nobody. They have no advantageous position to the Savior over us because they were there that morning. He loves us no less. In fact, he even told Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen the evidence and believed. A very special relationship that God has with his people. The most profound theology in all of the world is a personal relationship with a living Savior. I was reminded of that on Friday night as I was studying this text. For some reason, I was up late on Friday night studying. I don't know why. You know, you would think that this would be a, a sort of easy text, right? I mean, pastor, you should be able to get the resurrection down by now, you would hope. I know, I get it, right? And yet I didn't know what I was going to say. And I was just stuck and struggling. My heart wasn't in the right place. That's when God called out to me. I called out to God, but he first called out to me. Trying to get my attention. He showed me again who I am in respect to the cross. He reminded me of my sin. He reminded me of the heavy price. The weight of sin that I contributed to as well. And he softened my heart there. And then I was able to hear from him again. Then things started to get smooth. He does that. He beckons you. He initiates that with you. He's faithful again and again to do that. And so this morning, listen. He might be calling your name. Someone here this morning, dead serious. He might be calling your name for the first time. And if he is, you can't ignore that. Your soul rides on that. It's an offer that he made upon that cross, a love offering to have an eternal relationship with you. And it can begin this morning. Maybe you're here and you already know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, but you haven't heard his voice lately. He might be trying to beckon you again today to get right with him again, closer with him again. Have that knit bond where you walk and talk with him wherever you go. You know, if you're honest as we wrap up this morning, there is something inside of us like Chad Ochocinco or any TV star or musician that wants to be popular, that wants to be famous and wealthy, that wants to be respected and admired and, and loved and appreciated for who we are. And if we can't be all those things, to the point where someone would chronicle my life with a biography that they would write about all the wonderful things that I did, then the next best thing is that I would hang out with, or I would roll with, that I would be bros with people like that, that I'd get a tweet from Ocho Cinco, that I'd have friends in high places, you know, that I'd have all kinds of connections and that sort of thing. But that's what John's message is. What better connection is there? Who's cooler than Jesus Christ? Who better to be best friends with than an all-wise, all-powerful, creator, all-loving, sustainer of the universe that put the stars in the sky? Who's cooler than that? 
Nobody but Jesus. And you know what he wants with you? He wants one thing with you. He said, what does he want from me? He wants to have a relationship with you, a personal relationship with you. He didn't just die for the sins of the world. He died for your sins also. So as we close this morning and as we all bow our heads and close our eyes in prayer, I'm going to pray, but I'm just going to allow for anybody who's here this morning, again, with every head bowed, every eye closed for a minute, if you're here this morning, if you want to know that you're going to be resurrected unto heaven to be with Jesus for all of eternity today, you can find out right now. It's not a halfway deal. It's an all-of-the-way kind of thing. To believe in Jesus means to rest your whole self on him. It's to lay your whole self like you were laying yourself upon a hammock. Just to entrust your entire soul in him. It's to come to God and to say, yep, you're right, you've shown me. I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes before. I'm in need of a Savior, and I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. And I believe he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. I don't want to make it sound overly simplistic. But the gospel is simple. The commitment is forever. But the message is very simple. You say, God, I'm a sinner. Your son was sent on my behalf to suffer and die to show me how much you loved me. And now I want to receive that freely into my life. And if that's you this morning, I would ask that as I close in prayer, that you would just, wherever you're at, just stand to your feet. If you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never fully made a commitment and you want to invite the Holy Spirit to live inside of your heart that you will go to heaven and rule and reign with Christ for all of eternity. I would ask you this morning to just stand to your feet. So that I can pray with you. God loves you. He sent his son to die. Again, only if you've never done this before and God is calling you. You know, you know who you are this morning. Holy Spirit's tugging on your heart. If that's you, just stand to your feet. The angels will throw a party in heaven on your behalf. And everybody in this room will praise God. Bless you, brother. So wants to stand to their feet. Knowledge for the first time that he's Lord of your life. Welcome to do that. Lord, as we close this morning, how we do thank you and praise you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, there is no other hope we have. God, we're out of ideas. 
mankind is done scheming. God, we confess on our own, we can't figure it out. Lord, and I pray, even if there are those here this morning that still don't know you, that are still struggling in their heart to allow you to reign in their lives, God, I even pray that after the worship, they'd come forward and seek someone for prayer. Lord, that you'd continue to call them and draw them by your spirit. And Lord, for the rest of us that already have a relationship with you, God, we can't even put into words how much we cherish that intimacy we enjoy. Lord, there is nothing like a one-on-one relationship with you. So close you are. You challenge us in our sin. You love us through difficulty. God, you heal our bodies. You walk with us, Lord. You're there for us at 3 a.m. when no one else will be there for us. Thank you, Lord. All because of what your son did on the cross. We worship him this morning. What a great and an awesome Savior he is. Thank you, Lord Jesus.